0: Let's turn together to the triumphal ending of the book of Acts this morning. Chapter 28, uh, verse number 11 to begin with. Not feeling so triumphant, so the Lord wants us to learn today that uh, despite our feelings, this this stuff is true. Amen? Amen? So, Acts chapter 28, verse number 11 after three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered uh, in the island. Remember, they were on the island of Malta. A ship of Alexandria with the twin gods, Castor and Pollux. These are the gods, uh, the patron gods of sailors. Uh, with the twin gods as a figurehead, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli. There we found brothers, believers, and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and Three Taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem, into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers, through, the, through Isaiah the prophet, "Go to this people and say, "You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely uh, with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes, uh, their, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. And turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And to all these words, God's people say, Well, here at the end of Acts, we uh, have moved from a huddled mass in Jerusalem, back in chapter number one, to the masses of Rome, the capital city of the Roman Empire, uh, the center of the world as they saw it. So from a little huddled group of 120 in that upper room in, in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost all the way to Rome where millions upon millions of people lived, let alone pilgrimaged, every single year. And this is all just as Jesus promised. Remember back in chapter 23, if you will, when Jesus was testifying uh, before the Sanhedrin, before the Jewish uh, council, sometimes called the Jewish Supreme Court, chapter 23, verse 11 Uh, the Apostle said, the following night, the Lord stood by him, or Luke said, the the following night, the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, quote, take courage, for for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also, where? In Rome. So Jesus has promised to Paul that he was going to go to Rome to testify of the gospel. So he's, moved from the center of the Israelite religion in Jerusalem, where the temple was, and now he's moved to the center of, as the Romans described it, the center of the world. Uh, And in fact, this is is in fulfillment of what we saw at the very, very beginning of the book of Acts, in chapter number 1. If you go back there, all the way to the beginning, verse number (coughs) 8. Remember Jesus' promise and his call and his commission to the earliest church. And he told them that they would receive power, the power of the Holy Spirit who would come upon them to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, that's the larger region, Samaria, that's the next region north, uh, to the end of the earth. To the end of the earth. In fulfillment of Jesus' own words, the apostle now makes it to Rome. In fact, this was in fulfillment of Jesus' own words. Didn't Jesus tell his disciples as he was about to ascend back into heaven uh, that they were to go out and to teach and to baptize and to make disciples? Didn't Jesus say that? Make disciples of what? Of all nations. Of all nations. And in fact... Jesus' words there in Matthew 28, and again here in Acts chapter 1, uh, these are just the next little verses in the long series of verses along the story of the Bible uh, that show the Lord's fulfilling this great promise to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Lord called Father Abraham, or Abram, uh, and he called him out of Ur the Chaldeans, he told him this, so Back in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, Uh, we read or we read many moons ago in our sermons in in Genesis, in chapter 12, verse 3, the Lord said to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then listen to this, and in you, Abram, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Lord's plan was always to save the world. Didn't God make everything in the beginning, kids? Did God make everything in the beginning? He made everything. He hasn't given up on the world. His plan was always to then save the world, to recreate the world that he made that we've damaged by our sins. And so here in Acts chapter 28, we have the fulfillment of not just the beginning of Acts, but also what Jesus said was going to happen. But not only that, what Jesus said before he came to this world, the Lord, that is. But he said to Father Abram that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so we end the story. Paul with great courage. Paul with great confidence. And notice there he receives great courage from the brothers. Verses 14 and 15. So back to our story. Verses 14 and 15. They've made their way from the island of Malta. They've made their way uh, to Sicily. That's where Syracuse is, and they've then made their way up, uh, up the boot of Italy, to Regium, uh, to Puteoli. And verse fourteen, we found brothers. We found brothers, and they invited the brothers to stay, uh, Paul and those with him, to stay for seven days. And they made their journey, and they made their way uh, towards Rome. Again, verse 15, the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and three caverns. Uh, so brothers had heard, believers had heard of the Apostle Paul coming to Rome. Now, notice just the language again of brothers. So Christians, early Christians are called here brothers. They're called brothers or brothers and sisters. They're called family. They've never met him, have they? had, Had Paul been to Rome before? These believers had never met Paul. Yet, Luke describes them together as brothers, or brothers and sisters. They've never met, yet they're family. They've never seen each other face to face, yet they have a bond together. Just like if you or I were to meet some family members of ours that we had never seen, never met, and may perhaps never even heard of. Yet there's an instantaneous bond there, some relation uh, and some like, uh, liking towards them. There's, there's, of course, that bond of love. And so here the believers are described as brothers because they're family members despite never meeting, despite never seeing one another. This is just a great application for us to think of our brothers and sisters here, as well as across the world, no matter if we've ever met them or seen them or even heard of them. Believers are brothers and sisters. They belong to the same family, uh, and they should be full of love for one another. And these these believers, these brothers, they loved Paul. They felt such a kindredness towards him because they were in the Lord together as family members that they traveled, um, as Paul was on his way towards Rome, they traveled south, as far as the form of Appius, which is 43 miles south of the city of Rome. And they they kept traveling down. They they came down uh, to three taverns, 33 miles south. On the way up north to Rome, believers were traveling down to meet him, to welcome him, to greet him. And notice what that does for him. Notice what that does for him. It says to us, or Luke says to us, that he took courage. (sighs) Paul thanked God and took courage. He took courage because Jesus had kept his promise that he would go to Rome to testify of the gospel. And after many difficulties, after great seasons of darkness, remember he had uh, been under house arrest for two years in Caesarea. Through many difficulties, through various trials, five of them, through great seasons of darkness, he took great courage from the brothers. There's always the dawn after the darkness. And so here is Paul rejoicing, thanking God for keeping his promise, and taking courage from this family of God that surrounds him, even in a place he had never been, uh, amongst people he had never seen nor met, yet he felt uh, their love, and so he took courage. And in that courageousness, uh, in that courageous spirit, he goes on. He, as he gets to Rome, uh, he is allowed to stay there uh, by himself. He's under a house arrest, and he's with the soldier uh, whose task it was to guard him, to guard his life. Uh, And so after three days, we read in verse 17, uh, he does what he typically did. He wasn't allowed to leave the house. Normally in Acts, when Paul travels to a city, where does he usually go first? Where did he normally go first? We don't know this? He normally went to a synagogue, didn't he? Why? Why? What was Paul? He was a Jew. He was a Pharisee. He was a rabbi. And so he would first of all go to the Jews. And in Romans chapter 1, he tells us why. Salvation is by faith for everyone who believes. But then he says this. He says, for the Jew first, and then also for the Greek or the Gentile. He can't leave the house and he can't go to the synagogue. And so uh, he does the best he can. And he calls to the local leaders of the Jews, verse 17, uh, who gathered together to him. And he wants to describe to them how he got there. And that's all with great confidence for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And he summarizes the story uh, that he had, been, uh, he had been mobbed and, of course, he had been uh, saved. And then he had been tried. Uh, and the trial had no merit to it. There was no grounds to it. There were no evidence. There was no witnesses of what he was being tried for. Uh, and yet he had to appeal to Caesar. He had to save his life by appealing to Caesar, since he saw that no one was going to give him relief. Nobody was going to be just towards him. And so he appealed to Caesar, and he's made his way to Rome. But yet he says there, I, I've asked to see you and speak to you, verse 20, uh, since uh, it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. From the previous few chapters, what's the hope of Israel? That he's, that he's been tried for? And that he is now in Rome for him. What's the hope of Israel? Resurrection. The resurrection. The resurrection. Whose resurrection? Whose resurrection? The Messiah, first of all. And secondly, all human beings. All human beings. This is why this, this is the difference between the Pharisees, of which Paul was a part, and the Sadducees. The Sadducees rejected the resurrection, and so Paul knew that, and so he played up this, uh, this idea. But yet it comes to him, and it came to him, and it comes to us from the entirety of the Scriptures. And we looked at that a few chapters ago. I encourage you to go back and listen, if you, ha- uh, if you weren't here, uh, to see where in the Old Testament... Uh, that hope was, but we can be assured, and you can be assured, that it was found throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, from Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac, and the hope that God can raise the dead, uh, all the way through the prophets such as Daniel, who foresaw a day to come when God was going to resurrect both just and unjust alike. I am under arrest, and I have been tried, uh, and I have had mobs try to kill me, and assassins try to put me to death, because of the hope of Israel. That's why I'm wearing this chain. This hope, this resurrection we saw and we've seen is, is the very central uh, idea of Paul's message. On the one hand, the Messiah has been raised, and when he preached to Jews, uh, he had many times tried and belabored to show them that from the Old Testament Scriptures that the Messiah was going to die and be raised. But then when he spoke to Gentiles who didn't know the Old Testament Scriptures, he still proclaimed the resurrection. And he said, because God is going to raise on the last day all human beings, therefore repent and put your trust in this one man, Jesus Christ, whom God has raised. It's for this, he says, that I'm wearing this chain. Now notice, they appointed a day because they wanted to hear more. They, all, they had heard the rumors about the sect of the Nazarenes, or the Christians, those who followed the Lord, uh, Jesus as Messiah. Uh, they had heard of this sect, and all they knew was that it's, it's spoken against. And so they set up a time, a, a day, verse 23, and they come to where he was lodging. Notice this, in greater numbers. In greater numbers. No doubt the house was full, just as in the days of our Lord Jesus when he preached and performed miracles. And from morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. That's a long sermon, isn't did Isn't Paul preached a sermon earlier we saw in chapter 20 where he preached all night long and a certain young man was sitting in the third-story windowsill, and he fell asleep, it was so long, fell down to his death. Paul raised him from the dead. And here he is again, notice, preaching preaching from morning until evening. For as long as anyone would give him an ear to hear, he would preach. As long as someone is willing to hear and to listen and, and to converse and ask questions from morning to evening, we ought to be willing and ready to give an answer to any who would ask us the reason for our hope, the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's expounding, notice, means that he's explaining from the Word, he's testifying, he's bearing witness of the truthfulness, the veracity of the resurrection from the Old Testament, and he's doing this about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, all the way back to the beginning of Acts, again, all the way back in the beginning, we read about and we heard about this kingdom that uh, that in the gospel stories, the prophet John the Baptist came and he said, "Repent, because the kingdom of God is amongst you; it's at hand." And Jesus preached and proclaimed the kingdom. He gave parables about the kingdom. And when Jesus gave his final instructions to his church, they're huddled in that upper room in Jerusalem, they asked him, verse 6 of chapter 1, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They were thinking of that great and glorious time from the time of David all the way to the time of the exile. The kingdom. Will you now restore the kingdom to Israel? Will you throw off the shackles of the Roman Empire just as you once did to the pharaoh of Egypt. Will you now do it? It's not for you to know, Jesus said. Times or seasons, which the father of the father has fixed by his own authority. It's not for you to know this. What you need to know, as he goes on to say, is that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses. The Father's appointed a certain time and place and we'll let him figure that out. In the meantime, it's our job to do as Paul and as the church in Acts to expound from the Word, to testify of the veracity and the truthfulness of the realities of God's kingdom. And notice he's trying to convince them. He's trying to convince them about Jesus from the law and the prophets. Now, don't we sometimes hear as, uh, you know, we sometimes, we sometimes we even say as Reformed pastors, and perhaps you hear this, and perhaps we don't say it as clearly as we ought to say, and we, we hear it not as clearly as we should hear it, but sometimes we hear phrases and ideas and, and this uh, popular understanding uh, that, uh, that we are not to try to convince anybody. Have you heard that before? It's not for you to convince the unbeliever. God is sovereign. The Spirit of God is going to do His work. You can't, and you shouldn't even try, therefore, to convince anyone of the Gospel. Have you heard that before? What do you think about that? I mean, here's Luke telling us that that's what Paul was doing. We've seen before that he's not only is expounding and testifying, here he's described as convincing, but uh, earlier in the book of Acts and Paul's missionary journeys, uh, he, he, uh, Luke is using all these kinds of verbs to describe the activity the, of, of what preaching is. He was trying to convince. He was working as hard as he possibly could to respond to objections. He was trying to preach to the mind, but he's also trying to get to the heart. He testified. He spoke in convincing ways. Sometimes not so convincing, as we see here. But he tried to convince people about Jesus. There's no connection between God being utterly sovereign in his power, and you being a defeatist, and you saying, Let go and let God. There's no connection between those two things. There's no connection between God being sovereign in salvation and, and mighty in grace, and you doing nothing. There's, there's no connection there. It's a disconnect. Yes, God is almighty. Yes, God chooses and has chosen from, from all of eternity. Those whom He loves and those whom He's going to save. Yes, that's true. But just like Jesus told the disciples, it's not for you to know that. It's not for you to know that. God has appointed a certain number. You will never know that number. I will never know that number. Therefore, we are to speak and seek in as a convincing way as humanly possible We are to exert ourselves. We are to work diligently to know the word so that we can then speak the word and to know the person that we're hearing, even as believers, to know the person that we're speaking with so that we can, as best as humanly possible, try to convince them of the error of their ways and the reality of who Jesus Christ is. That's what Paul is doing here. That's what Paul is doing here. And he's doing it from the Law and the Prophets. We've seen this phrase throughout the Law and the Prophets, the Old Testament. If Paul could convince people, and he can argue on the base of the Old Testament about Jesus, how much more so should we be able to do so from the New? When the shadowy figure of the Lord, the Messiah, is now living in the light. He's come and he's revealed himself, clearly revealed to us in in the New Testament Scriptures. And so he confidently proclaimed his hope from Scripture, and he confidently applied that very same Scripture. Notice, as always, even with the Apostle Paul, even with a man as convincing and as schooled and as knowledgeable uh, and as powerful in his preaching as the Apostle Paul, some believed and some didn't. Some believed and some didn't. And no doubt, internally, he was, that must have gotten to him because... We read in his letter to the Romans, of course, that, that it was his heart's desire to see his fellow Jews saved. And he was even willing, he said, to be cut off from Christ so that they would be saved. Don't read this and think that Paul was a Stoic, uh, that somehow uh, this didn't affect him. Some believed and some didn't. Look, he's just summarizing for us the outcome. But Paul anguished He was full of dread because of the loss of souls. And so some believed and some didn't. They disagreed amongst themselves. Some were convinced, verse 24, but others disbelieved. Have we ever seen Paul give a message, a sermon, a study, for a moment, or in this case, an entire day? Have we ever seen every single person bow their knees to Christ? In the book of Acts, Have we seen a sermon where everyone believed? Well, at least one person, right? On the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit of God came, in a very powerful way, and all those in the upper room were speaking in languages that they had never learned, and everyone who was gathered from all across the Roman world who spoke all kinds of other dialects and languages, they were hearing the works of God in their own languages in a miraculous way, did they all believe? In Acts 2, did everyone believe? How many believed? A couple of thousand people, that's it. Remember what I told you in Acts 2 about how many pilgrims traveled to Jerusalem every single year for the day of Pentecost? Do you remember that? About a quarter million people. About a quarter million people. The first, quote-unquote, crusade evangelism event was a, was, was a horrible defeat. 250,000 people. A couple thousand believed. Yet Paul was confident. The word always has mixed success. Some were convinced, others disbelieved. And Paul, in great confidence, but the power of the Holy Spirit he stood up and he said one more thing to them. The Spirit of God was right in saying to your fathers, through Isaiah the prophet, even back then, the days in which the kingdom existed on earth amongst the Jews, it was still the case. Some believed. Some did not In fact, God told the prophet Isaiah to go to the Jews, to the Judeans, and to preach and to tell them that they are going to hear the message of Isaiah, but yet they're not going to understand it. They're going to see, yet not perceive. Why? Because their hearts were dull. Their ears could barely hear. Their eyes had been blinded. And in fact, just like the Lord said of Himself, His parables were meant not to illustrate truths in little childlike ways. They were meant to close the eyes and shut the ears and confirm the unbelief of unbelievers. So too, the prophet Isaiah said, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts, lest they turn and I would heal them. That's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 13. In fact, Paul comes to conclude as he's been sent uh, to Rome and he gives this one last final effort, this one last final push to bring the good news of Jesus Messiah to the Jews. He says, therefore, let it be known to you, these Jewish listeners, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And that's what his letter to the Romans is all about later on. Why the Gentiles listened. And how God used the Gentiles to provoke to jealousy the Jews. Because God has a remnant of grace amongst the Jews still, although most disbelieve. And that one day salvation will come to all of Israel. But yet that day is not yet. It's not now. Now is the day of salvation for everyone, but yet the harsh reality, as Paul even himself sees and perceives, is that they could not hear, they could not see, they could not perceive. And so God sends the gospel to the Gentiles. So he receives great courage from the brothers. He, with great courage and confidence, proclaims one last time to the Jews, uh, again and again and again, as he's been doing, belaboring Uh, working diligently, seeking to convince them that Jesus was Messiah. He was the promised Savior. And then we read as the story ends, with all boldness and without hindrance. He lives for two more years under house arrest at his own expense. And he welcomes all who came to him. Anyone who came, the apostle would welcome And he proclaimed, verse 31 says, again, what we read in chapter 1, verse 6 and following, the kingdom of God. And again, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He's doing what he's always been doing. And he does so, notice, with all boldness, without hindrance. With all boldness, without hindrance. Period, story ends. How does Acts end? Paul is testifying, preaching, proclaiming, teaching, with all boldness, without hindrance. And we turn the page, and there's no conclusion. There was a nice intro we read. Luke, as he opened it up in Acts chapter 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, the first book meaning his gospel, the gospel of Luke, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands of the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, so on and so forth. There's a nice little intro, a nice little beginning. Oh, Theophilus, Jesus began to do great things. And in this book, the second volume, he's going to continue to do great things. Where's the conclusion? Maybe Luke just ran out of scroll space. The scroll ended, and that's the end. Has Acts ended? The book of Acts is about what Jesus continues, what he began to do in the Gospel. The book of Acts is what he continues, present tense, to do. The resurrected, ascended King, our Lord Jesus, what he continues to do by the power of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the church. Has Jesus ceased to work? Has the book of Acts ended? For 2,000 years, Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, through the apostles and through His people, Jesus continues to build His church. He is the King. And the church still testifies of His kingdom. Seeking to convince any and everyone who would give us an ear to listen, that Jesus is the promised Savior of the world. In a sense, then, the book of Acts doesn't end. Luke ends it in this very strange way, unlike the letters of the apostles that have a nice conclusion and farewell and so forth. Luke ends his second volume on a cliffhanger. There's Paul in Rome, with all boldness, without a hindrance, testifying, proclaiming, and teaching. We know he died. We know the church continued. We know the church had great opposition. But yet there he was, with all boldness, without hindrance. Notice that, how Luke describes Paul's situation. With all boldness, but yet he says, without hindrance. Without hindrance hindrance. He had a chain around his ankle. He wasn't allowed to leave his house. He was under the watchful eye of a Roman centurion 24-7, 365. Many of his fellow countrymen, the Jews, did not believe. They rejected his message. They believed that he was a sectarian who was uh, who was stirring up violence and stirring up opposition to the truth of God. The Romans believed that he and all believers like him, that they were unloyal subjects of the Roman Empire because they would not declare, because they did declare that Jesus is Lord, not that Caesar is Lord. From the time of Julius Caesar, the Caesar was described as the son of God on earth. And all true Roman subjects believed that he was God incarnate. But yet here's Luke saying that Paul, with great confidence and boldness, is doing this without hindrance. He had many hindrances, humanly speaking. Let alone those that he speaks of later on see, in Ephesians of uh, the, the hindrances that we cannot see, the spiritual realm. We did not wrestle with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The, the apostle had many hindrances, but yet Luke says that he did so. He proclaimed with all boldness, without hindrance. Is there any hindrance to you and to me today to proclaim the gospel? Is there any opposition that you or I cannot face, that we have to say, well, we can't do we cannot proclaim the gospel. We cannot preach the gospel. We cannot share the gospel. Is there any hindrance? No, we might bemoan and we might we might feel bad about uh, certain political and cultural tides and so forth. There's no hindrance, loved ones. There's no hindrance. The church has existed for thousands of years. In, in, uh, with, uh, facing great opposition all across the globe, but yet the church can be described as testifying without hindrance. Why? Why? Why does Luke say that about Paul? It's not true, humanly speaking. Why does he say that he testified without hindrance? Why can I say confidently before you that there's no hindrance to the preaching of the gospel in anywhere on the face of the planet? Why can we say that? Who's the king? Jesus. What power does Jesus, the king, give to his church? Wait in Jerusalem, he said in chapter 1, for what? The power of the Holy Spirit. Is there any human power? Is there any human opposition? More powerful than the Holy Spirit? Is there any king or prince or congress or any other body more powerful than Jesus Christ the King? And so Acts ends very strangely to remind us that the gospel continues to go out. The work is not finished. Jesus Christ still is Lord, He still reigns. The Lord Jesus Christ is still King. The gospel is going to go out and accomplish whatever he wants it to accomplish, going out to conquer and to conquer, as, Roman, uh, as Revelation says. The lamb upon the throne, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he cannot be hindered. He cannot be hindered. So go out. Be bold. Be courageous. There's no hindrance, loved ones. Let's pray. Lord, help us to bear witness to your name daily, uh, weekly, monthly, year by year, wherever you place us, uh, we are to be your witnesses of this wonderful gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Give us ears to listen uh, to the questions, the concerns, the objections, the vitriol of unbelief, but yet give us compassionate hearts. Give us minds that are able to give answers and words to speak. Give us the desire, Lord, to share the gospel. It is the hope of the world. Help us not to see with our eyes things that seem to be hindrances, which mostly are our own feelings, but help us to be confident. And to know that you are the one whose word goes out powerfully. You accomplish your work through us. And Lord, give us encouragement and joy, even as we might share the good news. And like the apostles, some would believe and many won't. But give us confidence and joy in you. That you are the God who calls. You are the God who saves. And you are the God who uses us, frail, feeble instruments, to bring such hope to a lost world. So we ask that you would help us as a church body and a church family uh, to show the love of Jesus Christ to the world around us uh, by sharing the good news. It's the greatest news there ever, uh, that, that, that there ever was. And Lord, give us a zeal for it and a passion for the lost. Help us now, we pray. And Lord, as we come to the Lord's table, may we see, touch, taste, and hear that the Lord is good. Assure us Revive us in confidence and send us out with the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.